Coming up next on Contemplate. You cannot argue people into believing in Jesus. I've tried, okay? It doesn't work. Best case scenario, they'll pretend like they believe in Jesus to get you to stop talking. That's the best case scenario. People come to Jesus when the Holy Spirit draws them in their heart. That's how it works. Saul had been a fierce persecutor of Christians, and after an encounter with Jesus, he became a Christ follower himself. And when he boldly preached the gospel to the Jews in Damascus, their response was to try and kill him. Let's find out what happens. Turn to Acts 9, verse 24, and here's Pastor David. It says, But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through a wall, through the wall, in a large basket. So, um, apparently he had some friends because somebody told him that they were conspiring to kill him. He found out about it, which would have been very scary. I don't know how many of you have been in a situation where there's a group of people who wanted to kill you, but I'm guessing that it's hard to sleep at night with that going on. But they tell him that, and so the, the, they know that these guys are watching the gates day and night. So Damascus is a city. It's got walls all the way around it. There are seven gates in the city of Damascus, okay? And you have to get in or out. You have to go through one of these gates. These gates are all being watched so that he cannot get out. Uh, Paul tells us a little bit more about this, this adventure. In 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, it says this, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So at this time, the city of Damascus, which had been a Roman city, was being held by these folks I told you about, the Nabataeans, the Arabian desert folks. They were holding Damascus at this time, and there's this governor in the city. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on, but here's what we do know. We know the date, because he gave us this name. Luke doesn't give us a lot of dates, but here he gives us this, this name, and we know that while Aretas was holding this thing and this governor was there, that happened in a very short period of time, between 37 and 39 A.D., We've, historically, we've gone back and seen that that was in, indeed the case, and it was between the years of 37 and 39, so we know that Saul was let down in this basket sometime in there, which means we know that his conversion three years earlier happened between 34 and 36. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but helping us to understand how this is all fitting together as Luke goes back and forth between what's happening in Jerusalem, what's happening with Saul, and so on, is helpful. So that's where we're at. We're somewhere between 37 and 39 AD. And this seems kind of like an exciting story. You're running from the people who are trying to kill you. Here you are being let down in this basket through the night. And, and, and I don't know if it was at night. I'm assuming it was at night or everyone would have seen this guy in a basket. But he, they let him out, right? And, and, and you're running away. Okay, pretty exciting. But you've got to think about this from the perspective of Saul. Saul is a very serious man, a very educated man. Okay, a powerful arguer. He's a Pharisee. And we've, we've read about these Pharisees. They were used to getting a lot of respect, a lot of respect, a lot of honor. That's, that's the, you know, holding that office brought a lot of respect from the people. And here he is running for his life, being letting down for, letting for down from, from the wall in a basket. Um, this is humbling. 
This is humbling. You will notice that while Luke has told us in several other places in Acts, he tells a story and then he says, and such and such, so many people became followers of Christ. So many people believed in Jesus. Or the church multiplied and multiplied or something like that. And you hear none of that here. You don't hear anything about that there were all these people following Jesus because of Saul's ministry. So from what we can tell, I don't think his ministry was probably very successful in Damascus. Here he goes with all these skills into Damascus, but he runs out, tail between his legs, running, getting in a basket to be let down so he can run away. Um, probably not the moment where he was feeling the best about himself or his ministry. Okay, let's see where he goes. Uh, verse 26. It says, and, Saul, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So he goes to Jerusalem, right? Here he comes back to the place where he, three years earlier he had left on his way to go imprison the Christians. Now he's on his way back, perhaps walking by the very place where Stephen had been stoned and he stood there consenting to his death. Now a follower of Jesus, just like Stephen had been. Now he comes back to this city where he had wreaked havoc and wanted to destroy the church of Christ. Now he comes back as a follower of Christ. And when he gets there and he wants to join with, he's trying to join with these other Christians, his brothers and sisters in Christ, they reject him. Now, I think they probably had good reason to reject him. Last time he had been there, he was throwing them in prison. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if many of the people who were there at this time were people who had been in prison because of him who he may have come into their home and bound them up and dragged them off to prison. Maybe he had consented or voted for the death of some of their close friends. Right? That's who this guy was. And so when he comes back, it's not going to be easy to hang out with these people. It's just not. So let's look what happens in, in verse 27 and 28. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. So here's our friend Barnabas again. Remember, um, we talked about Barnabas in chapter 4. We, know, we knew in chapter 4 that his name is interpreted son of encouragement. And, and all we read about there was that there was this guy named Barnabas, and he had sold some property that he owned and brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And I told you then, we'll hear more about Barnabas. And here we hear about him again. We'll actually hear a lot more about Barnabas as we continue on. But here he is, this guy an encourager, right? Son of encouragement. He's, he's this guy, he loves Jesus, and he loves Jesus so much that we see Christianity in action here in a really powerful way. Barnabas takes a risk with his life and with the lives, actually, of any believer in Christ that he brings Saul to, right? We know who Saul is. I mean, my thought is this guy comes back into town saying, oh, I'm a Christ follower now. Uh, I'm thinking spy, right? Last time you were here, you're taking everybody to prison. Now you've disappeared for a little while, like you grew the beard a little longer so we wouldn't know who you were, and now you're saying that, that you're a Christian? No, I'm not buying it. Barnabas yet believes so strongly in the power of Jesus Christ to change hearts that he thinks it's actually possible that this guy, the biggest enemy of Christianity, could have become a follower of Christ. And he takes the risk. He looks past Saul's past. And this is the nature and the power of Christianity. 
is that when you walk into this place with your brothers and sisters in Christ, we aren't looking at your past. We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at Jesus. The forgiveness and the grace offered by Jesus extends even to this man who wanted to destroy the church, who wanted to kill and and imprison and torture those who follow Christ. Even this man, Jesus changed his heart and his past was put away. And that's the way that we are. No matter what your story is, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think you are, it's not too much for Jesus. And Barnabas understood that. And he was able to look past what Saul did. Barnabas was probably buddies with Stephen. I'm guessing, right? And yet, here he is, this guy who was a part of Stephen's death. Here he is accepting him in, bringing him to the church. And it says he was going out and coming in. It means they fully accepted him. He was hanging out with the believers. These people accepted him. The power of the love of Christ was so strong that these people who had seen all the things he'd done were now accepting him. This would be like somebody murdered your friend and you now are hanging out with him, inviting him over to dinner. That's, that's the level here. Maybe literally in this case, right? And so we see the, the amazing testimony of the church at Jerusalem at this time. Uh, let's look at verse 29. It says, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. <clears throat> He's popular. Uh, what are you going to say? So he spoke boldly. Now, what happened in Damascus when he spoke boldly? They tried to kill him. And what had happened to people who spoke boldly in Jerusalem? He had been the one who was leading the charge to round them up. But yet he comes and he speaks boldly because he's so excited about what the Lord has done for him. He's so excited about proclaiming the power of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that he speaks boldly again, knowing what the consequences are probably going to be. And here it says he's talking to the Hellenists, right? And the Hellenists, we've talked about who they are. They're these Greek-speaking Jews. We saw that Stephen, that's who he was hanging with, talking to the the synagogue of the freedmen, all of these Greek-speaking Jews. And the same word that was used when Stephen was speaking to him, disputing that word there, that's the same word that we're using here, how Paul is speaking with him. These Hellenists like to dispute. They like to dispute. And if you were uh, careful about the uh, safety of your body, you would not dispute with the Hellenists because we know what they do, right? They kill people. They killed Stephen. And so here he is, he's disputing with the Hellenists. He tells us a little bit more about this little period of time. In, later in Acts, in chapter 22, uh, Saul, Paul gives his, his story about what happened here. It says, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, so at this, this time that he's talking about, and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, this is Jesus that's, that's talking to him, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who, believed on, who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Okay. So, so we saw this last time where, where Ananias got a command and decided to argue. And here we see... Saul gets a command from the Lord, get out of here. These people are not going to accept your testimony about me. And his first thought is, now hang on, are you sure about that? 
I was this guy. I was one of them. I was the one who was the most zealous. I was the one who was out in prison and beating people, putting them in prison. I stood by while Stephen was. So they must see that the change in my life is something amazing and real. Certainly they're going to accept, right? He's got this view of himself and his ability and his testimony that says, hey, I will by force you know, of of the power of my own story and my own ability, these people are going to come to me. But Jesus has just told them that they weren't. He just told them that they weren't, but he wants to argue. He wants to argue. And Jesus, of course, said, depart. (laughs) Go. I just told you to go. I'm not telling you again. Go on because I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Now, you have to understand for Saul, you know, this guy is the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the Jew of Jews. He, he knows the Old Testament. He knows the law. He's, he's passionate for his people. We hear about it in other parts of the New Testament. He is passionate for his people, the Jews. And yet, Jesus is sending him to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Meanwhile, he's sending his other apostles, the Galileans, the hillbillies, as we've talked about, right? These guys who don't have anything like the education, probably, that Saul has, they're the ones who get to go to the Jews while he's got to go to the Gentiles. But Jesus doesn't always do things the way that we think he ought to do them. Sometimes it's in our weakness that he's strong, right? And he wants to do things. Listen, here's the thing. He's going to do things the way he wants to do them. You can argue if you want, but it's happening. It's happening his way. Okay, so Saul here wants to argue. Let's look at the 30th verse. It says, When the brethren found out, when they found out that that these Hellenists wanted to kill Saul, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Okay, so they take Saul. They find out that his life is in danger. They take him, and once again, he's running. Okay, they take him to Caesarea and then to Tarsus, which is Saul's hometown. We have a map um, here that can kind of show what we're dealing with. He's in, he's come from Damascus down to Jerusalem. I hope you can see that. I don't know. And then he goes up to Caesarea and then up to Tarsus. Okay. And actually we don't hear from Saul again for about seven to 10 years. Again, not, it won't take me that long to get to the next place we hear from him. I'm saying that in actual time, seven to 10 years. Okay. Um, And so Saul has come down. He's done this thing. He goes back. They send him all the way back to Tarsus, back to his hometown. Um, and, uh, and then the last verse of this section, verse 31, in chapter 9, it says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So, Saul leaves. The next thing we hear from Luke is that the churches have peace and are growing and multiplying. Okay, Um, we had, remember, at the beginning of Acts, Jesus said, hey, starting in Jerusalem, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So now we've seen sort of some completion of this. Judea and Samaria, Galilee, this area is now, they now have established churches that are multiplying and growing. So we've seen the first part of what Jesus has said happening. Meanwhile, Saul is up in, in Tarsus. So What are some things we can take from this? A couple things. One, the humility of the basket. The humility of the basket. God put Saul in a situation where Saul believed that he was going to be very effective in the way that he thought he was going to be effective. But we see him go to Damascus and preach, and all that came was threats of death. We don't hear about converts. 
And then he goes to Jerusalem and preaches, thinking that because of his history, people are going to come to know the Lord, and, and we don't hear that there are converts in Jerusalem. Once again, people want to kill him. Here's the deal. God doesn't need your abilities, okay? He doesn't have needs. He doesn't need your abilities. He'll use them, and it's an honor to you to have your abilities used by him, but he doesn't need them. The Jews were not falling down and worshiping God because Saul was such a powerful arguer. Okay? You cannot argue people into believing in Jesus. I've tried. Okay? It doesn't work. Best case scenario, they'll pretend like they believe in Jesus to get you to stop talking. That's the best case scenario. People come to Jesus when the Holy Spirit draws them in their heart. That's how it works. Now, you should be trying to bring people to the Lord, okay? It wasn't wrong for Saul to preach the name of Jesus, but Jesus will, the harvest will come when the harvest comes. And you cannot just count on how incredibly educated you are and how incredibly good at this or that you are. Jesus will use the, you the way he wants to use you. And, and Saul had to have some humility come down here. He was not very effective from what we read in Damascus or in Jerusalem, okay? Here's the deal, though. He does end up being quite effective. Um, in fact, we probably wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for Paul the Apostle and the great work that the Holy Spirit did through him. Basically, the world was changed because of him. That eventually happens. But at the beginning, right out of the gate, it doesn't. So a couple of things to take from that, right? One is God's in control. The other is sometimes it may seem like you're running up against a wall and the things that you're doing for the Lord are not bearing the fruit that you would expect them to. Hang tight. Hang tight. The Lord used Paul in an amazing way. But first he had to go through this humbling experience. Okay? The second thing I want us to take is that some people will say that because we have this kind of culture where we have more and more atheists, agnostics, people like that. They call them the nuns. Okay? No beliefs. That group of people is, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger in our country and probably in the Western world, maybe the whole world. People who are giving up on religion of any kind, on believing in God, they're just, they're either agnostic, meaning they don't, they don't think there's enough evidence to believe anything, or they're atheists, there's definitely not a God, you know, people, people like that, okay? That is growing. And some think that, well, if God would just show himself more clearly, people would believe it. People would believe it. If God would just show himself more clearly. But here's the thing. Take this instance of Saul. He's coming back to Damascus and Jerusalem to people who know and believe the Bible. They already believe in God. The same God that, that he believes in. Check, right? These aren't atheists. These aren't people who are against. They already believe in all that. They actually have the scripture and, and revere it. And Saul comes in using their scripture and the God they believe in and proves that Jesus is the Messiah. This Messiah that they've been waiting for. Okay? Not only that, but we're not talking about something where he's using the Bible like I am. And I'm saying 2,000 years ago and here's the evidence. He's saying, yeah, remember just a couple years ago? This guy was walking around. They, they knew about the miracles. There was no question about these things. There, there was no question. These guys knew that Jesus was there doing miracles, blind people seen, lame people walking, people cured from le leprosy, Lazarus rising from the dead, and more importantly, hundreds of witnesses, hundreds of eyewitnesses saying Jesus had risen from the dead. This was well known. It says in another place that this was not done in a corner. 
In other words, this was well known. These people were well aware that the reason there were all these people following Christ was because the evidence was incredibly strong for all of these things. And it says that Saul proved it. He showed them, look, here's a prophecy. Here's what happened in Jesus' life. You know about these things. You know that this happened. You know that this happened. These were the prophecies. This was the thing. And yet they didn't believe. They didn't believe. So if that kind of evidence was there and these guys didn't believe, maybe we ought to realize that it's not necessarily about evidence. It's always an act of the will. Because like I said, it, it's not just the belief or the assent to the truth of a certain thing. It's submitting yourself. Submitting yourself. And these people didn't want to submit themselves to Jesus. They had their religion. They had their rules. They wanted to be in control of their righteousness. I do this, this, that. Give me the checklist. I check them off. Everybody looks at me and says, oh, look how great he is. Look at all the money he gives to the church. Look at all these things that he does. They want that. They want to be in control of their righteousness. They want to submit themselves to to Jesus. Jesus has turned the world upside down and said, none of you are righteous. No one. Not one. That the only way that you're coming to God is through me and my death for your sins. They don't like that. They don't want to do it. They want their own power. They want their own authority. They want to do it their own way. They want an eye for an eye. They don't want to love their enemy. Right? Right? They don't want to do those things. They don't like that. They like their way. And so, we have the same thing now. People who are nuns and so on, it's not about evidence, okay? You want evidence? I can argue you evidence all day long. The the simple fact is, is that there is better, whether you believe it right in this moment or not, I can show you that there's better evidence that Jesus Christ died and rose again, that there is a God, that Jesus is, is the Son of God, and that there's only one way to heaven. There's actually better evidence for that than for any other worldview that I've come across. And yet, people reject it. But they don't reject it because of the evidence. They reject it because they want to be in control. They reject it because they want to be the boss of them and not submit to Jesus. So what we need to do is not just know our evidence. You should. You should be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. But you should also be praying for people's hearts to change. And sometimes it's better to show someone the love of Christ than to prove the evidence of Christ. I would say oftentimes, a little love goes further than a lot of argument. And so as we reach out into our community and want to see this transformation and want to see this change and want to see the world change, I want to see husbands and wives loving each other, children in happy homes, you know, people being able to, to help each other get through the difficult parts of life. I want to see people thrive and understand relationship with one another and with God. Well, that's got to happen through a heart change. It's got to happen through a heart change. And so let's make sure that we are praying for and thinking about the hearts of those around us as we continue to do what Christ has called us to do and go into the world and preach the gospel. I'm sure we all know people who need Jesus. Let's be sure to know our stuff, to pray, and to show them His love. And if you're someone who is still trying to figure all this Jesus stuff out, we'd love to help. Call us at 360-885-9000. Or better yet, come see us at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington this Sunday morning. Get easy directions at axechurchnw.org. We'd love to answer your questions and help you find life. Thanks for listening today, and we'll look for you right here next time on Contemplate.